Acts chapter 8. Matt, am I on? Good? Yeah? Okay, good. I heard myself there. Acts chapter 8. Revisiting a passage we were in last week, but we skipped over a little interaction. That is God's graceful and stark warning to us. <laughs> so let's get into that. As we do, I want to set up the concept of that we all have a relationship to power in some way, shape, or form. We all have power to a certain extent. We don't think of ourselves as that. We think of ourselves as democracy and kind of like being like just the like equality of power amongst the people. But the reality is that we know we have power and we don't necessarily even have necessarily even power. Uh, Money and resources can be power. Relationships can be power. Opportunities can be power. Um, having the uh, having public opinion behind your back can be power. We all have to ultimately deal and relate to power in some ways, whether you come from a uh, or whether you work in a situation where you have a low power distance, like you can talk with the CEO and grab lunch and talk about whatever you watched on Netflix last night, or you have a high power distance, you have never met the CEO, you don't, they may not even be in the same city, may not even be in the same continent. Regardless of the power distance that you experience, you have to relate and find yourself submitting to regularly power. You, we uh, find ourselves submitting to power in just enforcement in different uh, areas. I mean, you walk through an airport, in what other situation would you just Willfully, like, take off your shoes, take off your belt, take everything out of your pockets, walk through, have, hold your hands up. But you do it because they have the power to not let you on the plane. We all want power. We don't necessarily think of it in those terms. We say things like uh, financial freedom, which is another term for having the power to do what we wish. Uh, we talk about having opportunities or the freedom to choose. Uh, we talk about being safe or the need to feel in control, to be able to plan ahead in life, all those are ultimately pseudonyms for the power that we hold or possess or don't. Well, we're going to talk directly towards one form of power that we often attempt to wield, but God is, he's not, uh, as foolish to give the power that we uh, want so much, but we'll read about it here in a second. Let's read. Read with me. Acts 8. We'll start in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them, Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, 
he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven uh, you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had finished, uh, or now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of all the Samaritans. So in this story of the early church beginning to spread now out of Jerusalem and out of Judea, but now into Samaria, which we talked about last week, about the millennia-long relationship those two people groups had had. You are introduced to Simon the Magician. And magician is the word used. We'd probably be more familiar with the concept of sorcery. He would uh, utilize magic, and magic and sorcery was often utilized in biblical time periods for a sense of being able to have control and power. It was a desire often used defensively, protecting from disease, protecting from the demonic, uh, sometimes used in the assertion of maybe giving luck in winning uh, in the race or in conquest uh, or in uh, romantic relationships. It was sometimes used towards the aggression of cursing, which that was often punishable by laws in cities to not curse someone. And we are likely tempted to quickly pass over this is these people are just pre-scientific, pre-moderns who had some belief that there was some power behind manipulating the world through incantations, through spells, through ritual. C.S. Lewis writes in, I forget, probably Mere Christianity, he talks about the dual relationship of science and magic. He said these two things were actually two sides of the same coin or two twins. Just one grew healthy in modern thinking and one grew sickly and died. But they were both poured into with the same goal. Can we know and control our external surroundings? Now, this is not the time where, like, we rail against science and say, like, you know, I don't know, like, we try to pit science and faith, like, as if somehow they are opposed. But this is the time that we at least recognize there is a level that we take for granted of, like, well, that, of course, is just the science behind it. But we have all experienced times where you can manipulate the numbers of the situation or the, the observations to say what you want it to say. And even if the honest scientific minded is, is trying to go about it, we have to also recognize it's a desire to observe, to study, to break down, to learn whatever wisdom we can possess from that, and then be able to control that in all scenarios moving forward. And so while we might cast quick judgment on the pre-modern, pre-scientific 
use of magic and sorcery, they might similarly cast judgment on us. Looking forward, if they had the opportunity. And frankly, they probably would have right to, because there is something in our culture that dismisses quickly that there is a spiritual realm and there are powers that is something that there is a power in the Holy Spirit and he is not the only spirit present. And by certain efforts or certain commitments or certain giving over your heart towards those powers, they will give you power. At least a mirage of it. And that's not even true, like, historically. That's true if you just look across the globe now. I mean, yeah, talk to missionaries and... and other locations where they will tell you, you leave the West and crazy things begin to happen. And we say, well, why don't they happen here when we put them under a microscope? Well, if evil was really an intelligent presence and it was in a system where it said, hey, if we put it under a microscope, I just go dormant and they think I'm not there. Wouldn't that be the strategy you would choose? Meanwhile, you can wreak havoc on people's mental health. and get passed off as an imbalance of chemicals, which I'm not arguing is present. But is what you eat and how much you exercise the only thing that has the power and capacity to affect those chemicals? Regardless, Simon was powerful and given this power through whatever or whoever he was communing with. So much so that there's other writings throughout that we know that Samaria called him their first god, that he was seen as a godlike figure to the Samaritan people. And so this Simon, who is seen as a god, hears and sees the work of Philip in Samaria, of him healing, of him casting out demons and disease, the very things that people most likely would come to him for. And he says, though he obviously was quite successful in the way that all from the greatest to the least believed in him, there's more power in this. And that I want to move towards. And then we have the moment we talked about last week where the Samaritans don't necessarily receive the spirit in the first moment. And, and then the apostles come forward and John, who in the book of Luke is calling to call down fire on the Samaritan people, instead is being used by God to call down the spirit on the same people that he had cast off as subhuman. And it only took a millennia to happen. Just a reminder, as we talked about last week, maybe you are going to keep praying for something God's going to do in a millennia from now. And Simon believes, and there's something that happens in the calling down of the Spirit, that he sees the power Move And he goes to the apostles and he says, can I have that? I'm willing to give money in order to have the power to give the Holy Spirit to people. A fairly noble task, at least in its appearance. But they see to the side, they see through that and they call him to repentance for attempting to strike up a deal for the power of the kingdom. And this is the second moment where we're likely quick to scoff. 
and say, silly Simon, you can't purchase the power and control of the kingdom of God with money. But the question that I've been wrestling with all morning and now bring to you is, am I that different than Simon? There is a regular attempt of Christians to approach scripture and obedience like science, like magic. An attempt of if I say the right words in prayer, similar to incantation, if I pray enough times, if I do the right things, then God, will you give me opportunities? Give me protection. Give me insurance that when it comes down to it, I will have the ability to make the call. Some ways that um, I've seen just people wrestling through this, some of these being the, way that, the ways that I've been wrestling through this. Uh, uh, here's a conversation I've had a few times, uh, Sharon and I have both had. Purity culture movement. Taking a beating right now in uh, Christian culture. Uh, if you don't know, I don't know, uh, go down that Google wormhole later or something. But the concept of, uh, you know, made popular by the I Kiss Dating Goodbye books and other things that were like the sense of like, hey, can we instill in teens the sense that I will live into purity for my future marriage. A good and noble task. But left many of the people who went through that process who did everything the way they were told with the false belief that now I am promised a wonderful marriage, a happy ending, maybe a marriage period, and a complete, fulfilling sex life for the rest of life. And then they got married, or didn't, and realized none of those things have been promised to you. None of those things come easy. The idea of becoming, of increasing oneness and intimacy with another person while you've been spending your entire life moving towards a selfish inward reality in your own is going to happen just because you held out in high school? Not that that wasn't good, well and good, but it was not you purchasing the power to have all those things. And the disillusionment is a reality check to saying, you thought it was. Or you get busy doing something extremely sacrificial for the kingdom of God. And you serve and give of yourself and give generously when it hurts and do all the things. And then the movement or the relationship or whatever just implodes in on itself. Or you find you are not going to change the world. That you are only one part of the millennia. 
that is going to be what God is doing. And you get angry and bitter at God. Because what am I doing this for? To which the Holy Spirit might be lightly asking the question, exactly. Or even just the sense of, man, I'm working hard, I do these things, and then I can have the approval of people. I can have a general sense that, man, that person is living well. But is there a single character? I say character, that makes them sound fictional. Is there a single persona that we follow in all of Scripture that lives in a way that is obedient towards the kingdom of God and builds the kingdom that is not most of their life condemned, Jesus included? And so you find yourself having that moment of disillusionment where you realize, I was doing the things, but it was ultimately my attempt to go up and say, can I just have security for the next 30 years? Can I just know that it's all going to be okay? It is a form of an insurance policy. And again, we just maybe prove to ourselves that like either we're not reading or we're like reinterpreting pretty much every person that we meet in scripture. I mean, the, let's just for time's sake, just look at the life of David. Man after God's own heart. Is anointed king and spends the rem- entire youthful time after his anointing as king hiding in caves from the other king who wants to kill him, having spears thrown at him and not throwing back. And then, yes, he's pulled out of there to become the greatest king Jerusalem ever knew, to establish the people of God, and then have his kingdom ripped out of his hands by his son publicly with much cultural shame. to go on the run again where people believed all the same lies they believed about David before. This is the man after God's own heart. We want control. We want safety. We want power. We want insurance that it's going to turn out okay. I love you enough to say this. There is no insurance. That's true about life. There's no insurance in life. Only until it's profitable for that company to give it to you. And there's no insurance in the kingdom. Let me take it back. Here's your insurance. You have a good father who is working all things out to redemption and renewal, and he has prepared a place for you. Life could be hell until then. And in seasons will, because he loves you enough to parse out the reality that, yes, we have a cocktail of love for him and also the effects of following him and the control that we feel when we 
walk out Ephesians to its full to the letter. Again, that's a good thing. It's typically going to re- reap a harvest of wisdom. But that doesn't mean that you won't spend decades of your life hiding in caves. Being defamed. There's, I can't think of a person in scripture who wasn't. Joseph? Moses? Any of the apostles? And I get it. You're like, man, uh, thanks, kid. This sounds like a crappy deal. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, you're, you're welcome to go shop for another. Believe me, you will have countless opportunities in your life to go out and shop for another. I've already had a number. I'm not foolish enough to believe that my heart has been rid of the want of other moments. Because I don't know my heart any better than you think you know yours. So I, like Simon, am giving the same advice to you and to me of, man, I can pray and ask that God would remove that from me. Even though I'm going to highly unenjoy the process of that being removed. So that I might, like David, live from a place of brokenness. I, uh, in this passage, I was influenced to reread the book, A Tale of Three Kings, which is just, man, one of the most phenomenal books for the Christian life and something that we put forward to all our elders. It says this in chapter five, it says, God has a university. It's a small school. Few enroll, even fewer graduate. Very, very few indeed. God has the school because he does not have broken men and women. Instead, he has several other types of people. He has people who claim they have God's authority and don't. People who claim to be broken and aren't. And people who do have God's authority, but who are mad and unbroken, like Saul. And he has regretfully a great mixture of everything in between. All of these he has in abundance, but broken men and women he hardly at all. In God's sacred school of submission and brokenness, why are there so few students? Because all students in his school must suffer much pain. And as you might guess, it is often the unbroken ruler whom God sovereignly picks who dishes out the pain. David was once a student in this school, and Saul was God's chosen way of crushing David. As the king grew in madness, David grew in understanding. He knew that God had placed him in the king's palace under true authority. The authority of King Saul was true? Yes. God's chosen authority. Chosen for David? Unbroken authority, yes. But divine in ordination nonetheless. Yes, this is possible. David drew in his breath, placed himself under the mad king, and moved farther down the path into his earthly hell.
later on in the book, it talks about also, the book is essentially a, a fictionalized imagination of what it was like to be David and to be Saul and to be Absalom who takes the kingdom from his father. And then the moment when he's approaching the idea of, is Absalom is going to take the kingdom should I let it happen? You see David wrestling with a prophet and talking about the sense of, hey, I didn't fight for this. And if God is going to move, if God has moved his anointing for me, then ultimately I'm here for his presence and his spirit and his will, not his power. Because the power of God is a wonderful thing. It is a beautiful thing. It is given and works through all of us, through the spirit at different seasons and times of his life. And it is taken from us in other seasons. But it is not his presence. His presence is deeper than just the power working through you. The power to be able to control your life. Man, there is a, a deep, blessed freedom in submitting to a broken life. It takes away all this pressure that life is going to be controlled by you and it's going to turn out the way that you thought. And it becomes something that you don't have to fight to hold on to the power to control it because you never really had it to begin with. And you get the graduates of the university that he's referring to, like David, who while living in caves get surrounded by people who find something to be powerfully attractive about them. And that is that God's presence is in them, whether he's working his power and authority through them in great ways or not. But I get it. It kind of sounds like a crappy deal. And we all will continue to have opportunities to go out and shop for another. Your call. And I'll also say this as by way of encouragement. I see so many of you laying down that choice. And it really sucks. Sorry to the parents who have their kids still here. I've already, uh, yeah, I've already opened this up. But your name is written in the book of life. And I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know if you're just in year one of the millennia that God is going to do something powerful through what you're doing or if you're in year 999. But either way, the picture of being in the throne room of God in his presence doesn't seem to show a lot of people saying, man, but it was really hard getting here. Man, I felt like I was completely controlled the whole time, so it's not worth it in this moment. Because he sees and he's keeping track. And you probably won't get that reward in full 
for the next 100 years. Or however much they have left of that. But I see you choosing it. And may we continue to hold ourselves to the choice of laying down power for God's presence. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, it is so maybe baffling how we continue to move towards some version of a prosperity gospel, but maybe not because it's just true of all humanity and it's been true of every person that we read of in scripture, but yet you are gracious enough to rid us of that. No matter how much we cloak it in a spiritual version of it, that's all it is. It's prosperity and control. And you call us to something much more beautiful. Though we have to give up all control to get that. And I confess that I have a range of success in doing that. But I'm grateful for your grace to call us back again. In moments like these, through the picture of Simon, who says, hey, just pray for me that that isn't true, that God would make that no longer the reality of my heart. So I pray that for me and for many other me's right now. In Jesus' name, amen.